helpful uh, for anyone who missed it. And then, uh, you know, maybe it'll be an encouragement to you to either listen or watch again, or maybe even to, to watch it or listen to the first time. So Tim, do you want to just, uh, you know, give a five minute, five to seven minute summary, and then uh, maybe open us in prayer afterwards? Sure. Yeah. We'll get right to it. Yep, and I don't think I'll take uh, five or seven minutes, just a couple minutes here. A text that really could um, summarize what we're trying to do in these parenting sessions is uh, the almost the foundational text in all of Scripture uh, for the responsibility of believing parents. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This sweeping call and command of God upon our life uh, to be actively, aggressively, diligently, day in, day out, in all the circumstances and places of life, uh, around the table, walking down the pathway, uh, out and about with the family, we are to be teaching our children the things of God, uh, bringing up our children, in Paul's words, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And in our first session, um, we talked about some of the basics. Uh, what are the, the, the biblical uh, means and tools uh, by which we are to raise our kids? Uh, you may remember if you were a part of that, we talked about affection and example and teaching and encouragement and rebuke and correction and discipline. Uh, and we talked about how all of those things are to be applied on the foundation or built on the foundation of respect uh, because our children are equal with us, made equally made in the image of God, and therefore equally worthy of our respect at all times. Uh, we chatted a bit about discipline and some of the basics of that as well. Some of the, um, you may remember those that were a part of it, the four D's of discipline, uh, things that really do need to be corrected and instilled in our children. Uh, and uh, again, you may want to go back and, and listen to that. Um, I do want to mention that we're, we're having some conversation, too, in light of uh, a recommendation somebody made uh, to have some kind of session for parents with teenagers, because uh, we just recognize that there are significant challenges there as well. So that could be an upcoming event at some point. Just trying to provide here for us, uh, through this means here, um, some instruction and guidance uh, for, for parents in our church. So uh, let me pray, because uh, Alex is, is going to take us this evening through some 
massively important material uh, in light of the day in which we live. Uh, we need to be biblically grounded and biblically rooted or else both we and our children are going to lose their way. So let me pray for Alex uh, and God's blessing on, on this evening here. Father, I, I thank you for those that have gathered here. I thank you, Lord, that uh, we can go on learning, go on growing, uh, go on being discipled, uh, and uh, as followers of Christ, Tonight, Lord, learning more on how, as, as followers of Christ who are parents, uh, how we can instruct our children in this generation to, to find and be content in and um, joyful in their identity as they are made by God and redeemed by grace. Lord, would you please uh, be with um, Alex uh, in a challenging topic here this evening, give him much grace and clarity in Jesus' name. Amen. Take it away, Alex. Thank you, man, for your labors to do this for us. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Great to see everybody over Zoom. And you know, I pray that this time would be encouraging and challenging, and also the Lord would use this to build faith within our hearts. That you know, He hasn't called us. Uh, to fear, but to, you know, power, self-control, and discipline. So, so it's not a time for fear. So some of the key questions we're going to be talking about would be, you know, what does God's word have to say about our gender? How do we, and this is, this is in the outline that I sent out. And if you didn't get the outline, uh, you know, maybe send uh, a text message with your email address and we can have uh, Teresa or somebody email it to you. So uh, the outline is helpful just to follow along because there's a lot of content and a lot of detail. Uh, so the key questions, um, you know, how do we equip our families to think biblically about gender? And then how do we engage with our culture? And uh, we're going to touch on a lot of different topics as well, like uh, biblical definition of marriage and sexuality and family. But the primary focus will be on gender. And I'm going to, I'm hoping that we'll have time for Q&A. So uh, the plan, at least at this point, is to divide this teaching into two sessions. So we'll cover the first half today and then the second half in June. Uh, Teresa is going to help me collect questions. Uh, if you see in the chat window, uh, there is a number you can text your questions to, that 267 number. So as I'm going along, if you have questions, just send them, and hopefully we'll have time for Q&A. So let me open up with this question, like, it, you know, is this even a relevant issue? Uh, isn't it obvious uh, to, to a five-year-old that we are created gendered beings, that we're created male or female, that males are males, boys are boys, girls are... We need to talk about this topic. Well, let me just introduce what's going on in our current... Uh, climate in our current culture. Uh, in May of 2016, President Obama and the U.S. Department of Justice and Education uh, issued new guidance directing public school districts to allow transgender students to use the bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity. So that means if, if uh, a student is a biological male, but they decide they want to identify as female, that means you know, the government, the U.S. federal government has, to, has said they need access to the girls' bathroom. They need access to the girls' locker room. 
And I mentioned President Obama not because this is a political issue, but this is actually a theological issue. Uh, you guys know as a church, we don't endorse political candidates. You know, we don't endorse political parties. Uh, if President Trump had issued the same uh, ruling or some other president, we would mention his or her name as well. Uh, a number of courts have ruled that denying transgender people access to their preferred restrooms violates federal law. So simply saying only boys, biological boys, biological males can use the boys' bathroom, uh, according to some courts, you're breaking federal law. Uh, some cities and states have already tried to say that if churches are open to the public, they must let people use the restroom of their choice. So that means we shouldn't be surprised if we start seeing transgender rights groups suing churches, Christian schools, universities to force uh, religious organizations to abide by these new societal norms. So I think we should be aware that at this point in our time, in our culture, uh, we shouldn't assume that there's any public space that's immune from the dictates of our uh, you know, government and our changing culture. And so what does that mean for us as parents? Well, uh, as parents of children, that's, that certainly presents a safety concern, right? It, it, um, there's a reason that boys and men aren't allowed in the girls' restroom and vice versa. Uh, you know, this is just common sense, but it needs to be said because there's so much gender confusion these days. Bathrooms match biology. That's how things ought to work. Bathrooms match biology. It's simple common sense wisdom. Uh, if you change this uh, and you allow either gender to use either bathroom, you potentially open the door for sexual predators to take advantage uh, of people. So there are good reasons why men should use men's bathrooms and women should use women's bathrooms. There is a, there is a safety issue that we should be all aware of. And we are being confronted with this issue. It's only a matter of time before you and your family will have to deal with this. And so that means as, as the church, as the people of God, we shouldn't bury our heads in the sand. This is a relevant issue. We need to be prepared. But I say that not because we need to now be filled with fear or now we have to think about how to fight the culture war. We have to remember that the Lord warned us that in, these, in this world, we will have trouble. Blessed are you when others hate you, revile you, persecute you, and call you all sorts of evil on account of the Son of Man. We do need to be prepared to explain the truth and perhaps if God calls us to, to even suffer for it. And so the calling for us as the church is the calling for courageous neighbor love. Courageous neighbor love. We, God has not called us to fear, okay? I just want to share this passage from Isaiah 8 to, uh, to just remind us, you know, uh, who we really need to fear. We don't need to fear the government or this culture or what others might try to force us to do or not to do. We need to fear the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 8, 10 through 13. Uh, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. So we're certainly seeing a conspiracy, either obvious or not so obvious, to, to force Christians into line with the current moral and sexual revolution. But God's clear to us. 
that we don't give in to this conspiracy. We don't give in to fear. We don't give in to dread. But the Lord of hosts, he is the one we are to regard as holy. He is the one we are to fear. He is the one we are to dread. So while we don't bury our heads in the sand in denial, we don't go run around like Chicken Little screaming out like the sky is falling, the sky is falling. No, God has called us to courageous neighbor love. So I just want you guys to be aware of this, that this is a relevant issue. But, you know, our fear, you know, is ultimately we, we fear the Lord, not man. Okay, let me uh, just define some terms so we have some common vocabulary. Let's dive into this. Um, gender identity. Gender identity. This is a person's internal perception as male, female, or some other option. Basically, who they think they are, male, female, or some other option. A gender expression. Uh, the ways a person presents and embodies their gender identity in social and cultural contexts. Basically, how they express who they are. If they identify as male or female, how they want to express that through their dress or through their bodies. Uh, transgender. Uh, someone whose chosen gender identity differs from their biological sex. Some may choose to go through treatments or surgeries to conform their body with their chosen identity. And finally, gender dysphoria. This is a clinical DSM-5 uh, clinical term. Uh, people whose gender at birth is contrary to the one they identify with. So this is an important term. It's not an ideal one, but it is the one our culture is using, this term gender dysphoria. Uh, so I'll be using this throughout the seminar uh, to refer to those who struggle with their sense of gender identity. So those are just some terms we should be aware of. Now let me get into the main idea, the overarching big idea that I hope you take away from this seminar. Uh, trust, we are called to trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord. Now when it comes to gender identity, when it comes to teaching our children you know, that God has created them male or female, we are called to trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord. And before I get into the nitty gritty of you know, gender and what it means to teach and embody this, these things and to engage with our culture, uh, we just have, it's just helpful for us to be reminded that, that we need to model this trust in God as our sovereign creator and Lord. We need to model this in our families uh, day by day, not, you know, in all aspects of life, not just when it comes to gender identity. If the only time we talk about God as creator is when we talk about gender identity, then, uh, then we're missing the boat here. Uh, we need to talk about God as sovereign creator and Lord in all aspects of life. Uh, because if we're only isolating this to this particular topic, then we're in danger of hypocrisy. That means we need to be referring and understanding and uh, worshiping God as our sovereign creator and Lord in, uh, when it comes to our health, uh, when it comes to our future, when it comes to our lives, when it comes to our finances. He is our sovereign creator and Lord over all aspects of our lives. A couple scripture verses to just to help us to, to think about these things, helpful reminders. Uh, Job 121. Uh, this is Job speaking. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's helpful for us to be reminded that God is a sovereign creator and he is Lord. He's, he's got the right to give and take away. Anything and everything in our lives, whether it's our money, our family, our life, our health, he is sovereign creator and Lord. And the, 
the book of Job reminds us and teaches us that ultimately God is in charge and we are not. And it's helpful for us to remember that as we talk about this topic. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Again, a reminder of God's sovereignty. Who has spoken it and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And then Psalm 139, 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So I love this passage in Psalm 139 because it reminds us that God has made us, that we are knit together. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by our sovereign creator and Lord. And his sovereignty encompasses everything, uh, every aspect of our lives, every moment of our lives, from the moment of conception to the last day he has ordained for us on earth. And there's some other references there. I encourage you to uh, check them out uh, with your uh, spouse, with your children, uh, just to be reminded on God's sovereignty and to have that fixed in our minds and our hearts. So uh, I want us to now, at this point, just to take a look at our key verse for this topic when we talk about teaching our children about uh, gender. Uh, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. You know, when we're thinking about God as our creator, that how he has made us male and female, male or female, and that that's a, that's a good and beautiful and amazing thing, I want us to come back to this scripture over and over again. So let me read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So when God creates man, humanity, he creates us in the image of God. That means he, he has made us, created us male and female. That means a male will always be a male, a female will always be a male. This is something that's hardwired into every single cell in our bodies. Let me read this quote. Boy is in your fingers, your toes, your eyes, and your hair. God gives each of us a special code that is found in every tiny little cell in your body. There's a code for the color of your skin, hair, and eyes. And there is a code that says you are a boy and a code that says you are a girl. Girls have a double XX gender code that makes them female. And boys have an XY gender code that makes them male. Your gender code is stored deep in every cell of your body. And this is a quote taken from Marty Machowski's book called uh, God Made Girls and Boys. This is a book I want to recommend uh, for, you for your families. Uh, it covers all the major issues obviously at a, at a level where a, a child can understand and enjoy all the major issues such as our creation as male and female, the corruption of gender at the fall, and then our redemption in Christ. So that's a book I want to commend to you, Marty Machowski, God Made Boys and Girls. So the overarching big idea is we trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord. And I want to unpack that a bit tonight here. 
Uh, we're going to cover that under three main headings, how we trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord. We do this when we embrace submission, when we embrace differences, and when we embrace authority. So number one, we embrace submission, we embrace differences, and we embrace authority. I'm planning to cover the first two today and the last one the next session. So number one, we embrace submission, the reality that God made us. We embrace submission when we embrace the reality that God made us. And this is a central question in the transgender debate. Does God have the right to make me either as male or female? Does he have that right? Someone who is born male has the XY chromosome. Chromosome, someone who's born biological female has the XX chromosome. And children need to know this. We need to talk about this uh, with, with, our, with our children. Uh, this, is, this is something that modern science and biology has given to us, and it's a good gift. But we need, to, we need to know that God saw what he had made, and he saw that it was good. Uh, Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So which, that means that male and female is part, is central to God's good creation. It's part of God's good creation, male and female. It, it, uh, it, it reflects who God is as well. This is something I'll un- unpack more later. But the fact that, you know, God could have made us all males, could have made us all females, and would have been awesome and amazing. But God chose to, to create diversity. And that, so even though there's one human race, we, uh, the one human race uh, has gender diversity. And that diversity, that unity and diversity uh, in humanity reflects the unity and diversity in God himself. God himself is triune. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. It's, there's, there's unity and diversity. So, so we image that as male and female. I'll unpack that more later. I want to move on to this quote here. Uh, The Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that in the very beginning, God looked at his creation and said it was good. And he did not make any mistakes. Every star, tree, and animal was made exactly like God wanted it. Our hair color, skin color, freckles, and whether we are a boy or a girl are all part of the wonderful way God made us to be. And we've already seen in Psalm 139 that uh, each one of us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That includes our hair color, our, our skin color, uh, the, the freckles, uh, you know, our gender, male or female. Uh, and we could add our height, our ethnicity. Every part of who we are, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by our creator. And that includes, obviously, our creation as male or female. And of course, the temptation in our current culture, in our age, is to deny God and listen to the serpent, to deny the reality that God made us and listen to the serpent. You remember in Genesis 3, Satan comes in the garden and says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Genesis 3.1. In the same way, the serpent tempts us into thinking, well, did God actually create you male or female? Why would you let anyone tell you who you are? And not only are we tempted to deny God in that way, we're, we're tempted to think that we can be like God 
So Satan also said in Genesis 3, 5, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and then you will be like God. In the same way, the transgender ideology holds out this, this, this thought, this temptation of, well, did you know you could be your own creator? You can decide for yourself if you are male or female. You don't need God. You can be God. And we know that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And he has deceived people into denying God and, and even thinking that we as human beings, that we can be like God. This is where I want to introduce a, a, a term in theology. Uh, many of you are familiar with it. Uh, it's, it's the creator-creature distinction. The creator-creature distinction. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, what it means is, is that uh, a creature will always be a creature. You're made a creature. I'm made a creature. Creatures have been made and are and always will be a creature. We can never be the creator. And the creator God is and always will be the creator God. There is a distinction, a fundamental uh, distinction, a radical distinction between the creator and the creature. And so this really is the defining issue. Uh, that's why it's first on our list here that we, we are called here to embrace submission, to embrace the reality that God is creator and I'm creature. That he is God and I am not. He is God and I am a human being. So the question for us here, for us as a church, for us as as a wider culture, is will we submit to God as the creator? Will we accept uh, the the role, the the gender identity that he has has, uh, given to us as a creature, the way he has made us? Or are we going to attempt to overthrow the creator? Are Are we going to try to... Uh, as a creature, try to be the creator. A theologian, Herman Bovink, puts it this way. A creature really has a choice between only two options. Either it chooses, it chooses to be its own creator and thereby ceases to be a creature, or it must be and remain a creature from beginning to end and therefore owes its existence and the specific nature of its existence only to God. Uh, And let me continue with this quote uh, from Tony Reinke. Chromosomes cannot be re-engineered, removed, or scrubbed from the software of our bodies. It may be possible for a trans woman to pass for a woman on the street at the visual level, but it is not possible for a man to morph himself into a biological woman. It is not possible to raise our bodies to the ground and rebuild them. A trans woman can grow his hair long and wear high heels and pump estrogen into his body. But unable to decode ourselves from the genetics of our physical becoming, we are left to rearrange anatomical aesthetics and coerce ourselves in a direction that runs against nature. So what's the point of this somewhat lengthy quote? Well, the author is saying you can change your external appearances. You can inject your body full of hormones. You can change your appearances, you can remove organs, but you can't change every single human cell in your body. At a fundamental level, there is a creator-creature distinction. The creature can never be the creator. The creature can never create itself. Okay, I realize at this point, I've thrown a lot of theology at you and you're wondering, 
maybe how do you put feet to this theology? I want to introduce some questions and discussion starters from another book uh, by uh, uh, Graves. His last name is called Gender, a Conversation Guide for, Pastor, uh, for Parents and Pastors. Uh, these are some discussion questions you can use for your own families. I'll just read through them. Explain the two genders and ask your child what gender people are. Uh, when your child discovers something new in the world, like flowers, the moon, an animal, tell them God made it and ask what other things God has made. Uh, have conversations about different things that God created. Talk with them about how cre God created that or created the people who made it. If God created every single little bug, then we can believe that he cares for you and me and that he paid attention to even the tiniest details. Finally, have conversations about how good God is. It is important for children to understand that God loves his creation and called his creation good. So that means we should, you know, I want to encourage you to be teaching your children that, you know, God has made you, you know, son, made you daughter exactly the way he wanted you to be. Whether it's short or tall, whether he's made you white or black or Asian, whether he's made you boy or girl, every aspect of who you are was designed by God. And his creation is good. We need to be having these conversations uh, with our children. So that, that brings us to, uh, to my second book recommendation. Uh, those discussion starters uh, were taken from this book, Gender, a Conversation Guide for Parents and Pastors. It's, uh, this book is less than 100 pages. Uh, the book is broken down into different sections. So there's a section to, uh, to engage with your children if they're under 7, if they're 7 to 11. And then if they're 12 and above. So that's Brian Seagraves and Hunter Levine, Gender, a Conversation Guide. So that's the first major point. Uh, we're called to embrace submission. Uh, embrace submission. That the reality that God made us. He is creator and I am creature. And that there is a creator-creature distinction. And so we trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord when we embrace submission. So second... We trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord when we embrace differences. When we embrace differences. That means male and female are not interchangeable. Male and female are created different. And these differences are made unique in order to fulfill the creational mandate. We're going to jump back here again to, to Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when God gave that original mandate to humanity to be fruitful and to multiply, uh, it that mandate required both male and female. See, Adam couldn't have been fruitful and multiplied without Eve. And Eve couldn't have been fruitful and multiplied without Adam. So even though male and female, we are created equal, we're created differently, with different roles. We're not interchangeable. And these physical realities align with spiritual realities also. Uh, that means a, husband's, a husband and father's role is to, is to protect, to provide, and uh, we see these in, in the way that God has, has uh, ordained and made us, uh, made males, you know, and, and given 
both physical and spiritual roles and responsibilities. Uh, we know that uh, males are given greater physical strength, for instance. Uh, males are given the role of, of leader, to be the leader in the home. And then the wife and the mother's role is to, is to nurture, to be the caregiver. So uh, females are given the ability to bear children and to nurse. Uh, females are given the role to be a helper. And I want to again emphasize that these differences in role don't, uh, don't mean differences in work. It's not better or worse to be a male or a female. It's not better or worse to be a leader or to be a helper. There is divine glory and dignity in these roles, which means there's also uh, a responsibility and accountability. That means each one of us will answer to God one day on whether we submitted to the creational blueprint that God laid out for us. So let me unpack this a bit more. What does it mean to be male or female? Uh, you know, there are creational differences, creational differences, right? But there's also cultural differences and expectations as well. And we need to be able to uh, navigate these different categories to discern between, you know, what are biblical differences and what might be cultural uh, differences or what might actually be matters of preference or taste. So I want us to be able to distinguish between creational, cultural, and conventional differences. So these are the three kind of categories we're going to look at when we look at differences between males and females, okay? So creational differences, cultural differences, and conventional differences. And I'm going to go uh, into these in, in the order of decreasing flexibility. So uh, those creational differences would be the differences that are are inflexible. And then I'll, as we move through these three, uh, we'll end with differences that are the most flexible. So we'll spend most of our time on the first one. So number one, creational differences. Creational differences. These are differences we need to embrace with joy. These are differences that are, that are inflexible. So males and females were created uh, with, with different anatomy different anatomy. As I hinted at and mentioned earlier, males are built to be protectors and providers. Females are built to conceive and bear children. Our unique body parts show us that we are male or female. A person with male anatomy is reflecting physically the fact that they are created a man. A person with female anatomy is reflecting that she is a woman. Men and women are more than just their anatomy, but they are not less. Let me read this next quote. Uh, Fertile and functioning sex organs reshaped into disabled sex organs is not human progress. It is the mutilation of nature. The act of surgery renders a body denatured and now incapable of fitting into the larger created pattern for which it was made to attend. So what does that mean? That means good science, good biology, good medicine confirms what God's word says. Uh, it says, I mean, science teaches us, right, that males have sperm, females have egg, and you need both to conceive a child. And only a male can produce sperm. Only a female can produce an egg and conceive and give birth to a child. See, even in conception and procreation, we see uh, loud and clear the differences in gender roles. Again, these differences that would just be so obvious to anyone just a few years ago, but now are, uh, you know, are up for discussion. 
This is just basic middle school biology, but because of so much confusion now, because so many people are, are, are denying these creational differences in their attempt to reject the creator. Uh, let me give you an example uh, of this, uh, this almost, uh, I don't think it's too strong of a word, word to say uh, insanity that's going on. Uh, recently, a court in Great Britain had to make a decision which would seem to be obvious to all, but sadly not very obvious. So in Great Britain, there was this transgender man, uh, Freddie. Uh, Freddie was born female, but transitioned to male. So born female, transitioned to male, now identifies as male. And uh, Freddie gave birth to a son. Uh, now remember, Freddie is female. And creation tells us that only females give birth. But Freddie wants to be listed as the child's father. Uh, but the law specifies what we all know to be true. The person giving birth is the mother. Only mothers give birth. But this reality is being denied by Freddie and the transgender ideology. And so they're protesting the fact, he's protesting the fact that he can't be listed as the child's father, even though he gave birth. And so he says, any right-thinking person can see the inconsistencies in the law. And it's just tragic that they don't see that they are fundamentally inconsistent with God's created order. So we need to embrace differences. There's differences in anatomy in God's good creation. But not only are there differences in anatomy that should seem to be obvious to, to all of us, but there are differences in roles. Again, I've already hinted at some of these things, but I want to unpack these a bit more. Uh, the female is the one who is called to be a mother, to be the nurturer and the caregiver. First uh, Thessalonians 2.7 says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Uh, we looked at this, uh, the passage in 1 Thessalonians last time Tim unpacked it a bit for us. It's a beautiful passage on parenting. Uh, but, you know, the Apostle Paul compares his ministry, you know, like a nursing mother caring for her own children. And obviously using that imagery because it's powerful. You know, when you think of a nursing mother, you think of, uh, you think of the, the warmth, the care, the love, the concern, uh, the attentive, uh, attentiveness to detail that a nursing mother has. Uh, if you guys didn't get a chance to listen, this past Sunday, Rick preached uh, in Matthew and talked about, uh, you know, Jesus as a mother hen wanting to gather the people of Jerusalem as chicks under her wing. Again, just you, you see, you know, that, that image of nurture and care. And we've already talked about this, how only females, only females can be a mother, only a female can give birth, only a female can actually nurse an infant. So what's the application here? I think for us as parents, uh, we need to teach our children, our, uh, uh, the girls, our daughters, uh, to nurture, to nurture those who are around them. Obviously, not all girls, not all women are called uh, to biological motherhood, but all are called to motherly care and nurture. So we need to train our girls to, uh, to, to think and act uh, with compassion and care towards those around them. Uh, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 says this. Uh, An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. <clears throat> she is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. 
She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household. Her children rise up and call her, call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Uh, Proverbs thirty one. We all you know obviously only looked at you know little portions and excerpts of it. You know paints a a picture of uh, of an excellent wife and some of the characteristics. Of, of what that nurture looks like within the context of the home, obviously. And, you know, these are not just uh, Old Testament truths, but these are New Testament teachings uh, reiterated by the Apostle Paul in Titus 2, 4 and 5. Now, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So we see some applications. You know, this is how God has made females, how God has made girls, how God has uh, called uh, many girls. Not obviously all will become mothers and, you know, having, you know, rearing their own daughters, but all are called to nurture. All, all girls are called to nurture. Now, how about, how about males? Males are called uh, to, to fatherhood, uh, to instruct with authority and, and provide with faithfulness. We are called to, instruct with authority and provide with faithfulness. This is how we need to be thinking about how to instruct and teach our sons, our boys. We read 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, 11 and 12. Again, that same passage where the Apostle Paul describes his ministry in terms of parenting language. Uh, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the father is the one who has primary responsibility in the home to instruct his family, to, ins- to teach his family the ways of the Lord, to know and follow the Lord. And we only have to look back at Genesis uh, to see some of these foundational uh, uh, you know, realities. Uh, you recall Genesis, God's instructions. Uh, to Adam, uh, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Those instructions were given to Adam, not to Eve, in Genesis 2.16. You recall Eve wasn't even created yet. And you remember in the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam is the one primarily held responsible. And the father is also the one who has the responsibility to provide, to provide for the family. Uh, God instructs Adam to work and keep the Garden of Eden. So, so Adam, even before the fall, he had work to do. He had responsibilities. He had to provide. Again, Eve wasn't even created yet. And we can also uh, look at Colossians 3, 18 through 20, and 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15. Don't have time to look at those passages tonight, but I encourage you to check them out. I do want to clarify what these texts don't say. Uh, these texts, these scriptural passages don't say that, the, that girls shouldn't be interested in God's word. Uh, in fact, the opposite is true. The older women are called to teach younger women. So we all need to know God's word. We need to all be teaching where God has called us to teach in the spheres of influence that God has placed us. And nevertheless, scripture does make it clear that the males, the father, carries the primary responsibility to instruct their household, to instruct their wife, to instruct their children in the ways of God. Another clarification. This doesn't mean girls or women can't pursue a career outside the home. There are some girls 
you might be raising daughters who are going to be called by God to serve Jesus in corporate America. And that's a wonderful thing. I think it's a challenging call to be called to, to be a mother and also to work outside the home. But we need to, we need to remember, however, even, even in that situation where, a, where a, a woman might be called to work outside the home, even in those situations, uh, you know, where they are called to be mothers, you know, that, that motherhood is a primary responsibility. That care and nurture of children is a primary responsibility that trumps the pursuit of a career. Okay, um, I hope that provides some bit of clarification on how to apply some of these truths. Uh, I want to also talk a bit more about, uh, you know, applying, uh, you know, some of these truths to our sons. I want to just continue a bit more here. Uh, the fact that God has created males to be, uh, to have primary responsibility to instruct and protect and to provide, right? Uh, that means... Uh, you know, parents, if you have boys, uh, boys need to be taught the Word of God. They need to be taught how to apply, how to teach the Word of God. Because one day, these boys will hopefully grow up to be uh, husbands and fathers, and they will have the responsibility to teach the Word of God in their home. So how are we equipping our, our, our sons to know the Word of God, uh, to know it well enough to be able to teach others? Now, they might not be called to be a pastor, but they are called uh, to, in to provide that biblical instruction in their home. Okay, so we got to be thinking about these things. Uh, boys need to be taught a personal responsibility. Taught personal responsibility. They need to be taught the value of work, the value, the, the necessity of providing for themselves and their families. Just as Adam was given that mandate, you know, to, to tend the garden, to guard it and keep it, to take care of it. We need to teach our sons to, to value work, to take responsibility over their family. Scripture is clear on this. You know, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. This is a gospel issue, 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So this, is a, this is a gospel issue. We're, we need to teach our sons uh, that they have a primary responsibility to provide for their families, to provide for themselves. Uh, that if they don't work, they shouldn't be expected to eat. If they don't provide for their own home, their own relatives, they're worse than an unbeliever. And we can see so many problems in society uh, come directly from the fact that men refuse to take responsibility. Men refuse to take responsibility for their wife, for their children. Men sleep around. They have sex with multiple partners, and then, and then when their partners get pregnant, they abandon their children. Fatherlessness is a modern-day catastrophe. It's a modern-day catastrophe. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, about 20 million children in the U.S., one in four, grow up without a father. One in four. 20 million children grow up without a father. And the results are devastating. You know, children who grow up without a father are more likely to be poor, more likely to be involved in drug and alcohol abuse, to drop out of school and suffer from health and emotional problems. Fatherless boys are more likely to commit crimes. Fatherless girls are more likely to become pregnant as teens. So we need to be teaching at a young age to our boys what God calls them to do, 
God calls them to personal responsibility. And that needs to be modeled and taught within our homes. That's what it means to be a man. Okay, so, we, so we've talked about uh, embracing our differences. We've looked at uh, different anatomy. We've looked at different roles. Okay, we've looked at you know, how God has made us, made us with different body parts for procreation, for creation. God has called us into different roles within the home, within the church. Uh, and now I want to talk, you know, take a step back and look at the theology behind this. You know, earlier I, I said, you know, the, the fact that God created us gendered uh, it, it is a reflection of who he is. It, it images who God is. And these differences reflect the differences in God himself. You see, our culture wants to erase differences. They want to erase those differences between male and female, between men and women. They want to tell you that men and women are interchangeable. But that's not true. We know that from nature. And more importantly, we know that from God's word. So that means as Christians, we shouldn't be embarrassed about these differences. Shouldn't have to hide them. Shouldn't have to be worry about what the world thinks about us. We shouldn't be embarrassed about these differences. In fact, we should embrace these as God's good design for humanity, which means that God has created men to be servant leaders. God has created women to be helpers. We need to embrace these differences because these differences reflect who God is. And because human beings are created in the image of God, we expect these differences to reflect God himself. They reflect God, reflect his glory, reflect his being. These gender differences image the differences in God. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11.3. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. You can also see Genesis chapter 2 and in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33. We know there's a relationship within the Trinity. Right? There's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There is a unity. Right? There is only one God. One God. Um, uh, one God. And each person is, is co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal. There is only one God. One God who is Lord over all. One God who is creator. And yet there is there's diversity in this one God. There's different roles, different persons. The Father, for instance, initiates. The Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. Okay, so the Father initiates, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. So, for example, it means that the Son doesn't initiate. It's not the Son who sends the Father. The Father sends the Son. God the Father sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world to save sinners. It also means that the Spirit, for instance, the Spirit didn't accomplish salvation. The Spirit didn't die on the cross. Neither did the Father. It was the Son who died on the cross. And then the God, God the Father sent God, as we, as we talked about, God the Father sent God the Son to die on the cross. And then the Father and the Spirit send the Spirit, Father and the Son send the Spirit to apply. Okay, so, so all that Jesus has done for us, you know, means nothing unless the Holy Spirit takes that truth and applies it to our hearts shows us who Christ is so we can trust and believe Jesus Christ. Spirit has to apply the work of the Son into our hearts, into our lives. It has to give us new birth. 
And what I want to emphasize here is that these roles are not interchangeable. Right? These roles are not interchangeable. They reflect the unity and diversity of God himself. And once again, as a reminder, these differences in role don't mean differences in value. The father isn't more God than the son. The son isn't superior to the spirit. No, there is one God, three persons, each person co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. And so Paul takes this glorious truth about the unity and diversity even within the Godhead and applies that truth to human beings. It says that, the head of every man is Christ, okay? We understand that. But the head of every wife is her husband. The head of the wife is the husband. There's a headship here, a leadership. There's an order. There's a role, distinct role that is assigned between male and female, between husband and wife. And again, this reflects the reality of who God is. The head of Christ is God the Father. And so there is a creational order. Just as God, you know, God has appointed man to be the head, to have responsibility, to have authority. We're not going to have time to fully unpack that because this isn't a marriage seminar. But what I will say this briefly, in God's economy, authority is always used for for the sake of service, for the sake of service. Authority isn't supposed to be used to lord it over others. The world uses authority for selfish purposes. The world uses authority to get, to oppress, to destroy, to abuse, to empower themselves, whoever has the power. But the Christian uses authority to serve others for selfless ends. Remember, Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Remember, we all know the passage, right? For even the Son of Man, God himself, the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? His, Jesus uses authority to lay down his life for us, to serve us. And that is what God calls the male, the husband, the father to do. It's not a, a lording over others authority, but a servant leadership authority, a, a die to myself authority. And we've already seen how these differences in role permeates and fills every aspect of the home. So, for example, right, we, uh, the male, the husband, initiates in procreation, and the female, the wife, responds, right? The, the husband protects and provides, and the wife nurtures the children. The wife nurtures, the, the mother nurtures the children both inside and outside the womb. Uh, I want to pause here. I know we've covered a lot of contact, and I just, I, I want to pause here and just recognize that not every family has a two-parent, is a two-parent home, is a two-parent family. You might come from a family where there's only one parent or where, where only, one, or only one parent is actively involved. Um, you might have children that are suffering, the, suffering uh, fatherlessness within your home. Uh, you might be a victim of spousal neglect or abuse. Uh, Paul is aware that whenever the gospel is preached, that not every member of the household will come to faith. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 17 says this, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Only let each person lead the life that God has assigned to him, into which God has called him. Paul acknowledges that some, in some households in the church, there will only be one spouse who is a believer. And in some cases, the unbelieving partner leaves the believing partner, the believing spouse. And we have to realize that, sadly, in a broken world, things aren't the way they should be. And if you find yourself in that kind of situation, we don't want you to be discouraged. If you find that yourself in that kind of situation, we want to just remember that God's grace takes your weakness, our weakness, and turns them into strength as you rely on Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 says, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. And if you're here tonight and you feel like you are weak and you are inadequate and you are lacking, well, we all need to be reminded that God's power is perfected in weakness. When we are weak, then we are strong in him, strong in Christ. And this is true for all of us, whether we have a two-parent home or we're in a single-parent home or we're in a blended family or whatever trials or difficulties we're facing. So in summary, we need to teach our children to recognize and embrace these creational differences. That God is our sovereign creator and Lord, and he has the right to create each one of us, male or female. He is God. He is creator. He is Lord over all. And the, and the, and the different anatomy that we have, different biology, the different anatomy and the different roles reflect differences in God. We don't have to be embarrassed about them. We don't have to be ashamed of, of them. We can embrace them. And so I want to uh, go into some categories. Uh, again, it's like we, we're covering these categories of gender differences. So, so we've spent a, a great deal of time looking at our, the creational differences between male and female. Okay? Uh, a bulk of our time looking at those creational differences. Those are differences that are inflexible inflexible differences. That's the way God has made us. But now I want to take uh, the remainder of our time, the next uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes here, uh, to look at the cultural differences between male and female, as well as conventional differences. We'll go through these pretty quickly, but I think these are important for us to be aware of. So number two, cultural differences between males and female. We can embrace these as the church as a way to serve others and serve uh, our neighbor in our wider culture, okay? Uh, there are certain cultural norms that are subjective, but they are used by society to provide a common language to define who is a boy and who is a girl. I like to think of these as similar to traffic lights. In our culture, in this country, a red light means stop. A green light means go. Right? When you see a red light, you need to stop. When you see a green light, that means it's your turn to go. Uh, now, whoever designed the traffic lights could have defined it the other way. They could have said, well, red light means go and green light means stop. But they're defined the way they are. And that's a convention. Right? That's a, 
uh, we need to accept that if we want to be able to drive safely. So in a similar way, in our culture, pink generally refers to girls and blue generally refers to boys. Not always, but generally. Well, they could have been defined the other way, but that is the common language we use in our society, in our culture. So for instance, if you have a newborn girl, if you have a newborn girl and you don't want your newborn girl to be confused as a boy, what are you going to do? You're going to dress your girl in pink and put a bow in her hair. Because that's what our culture does. Our culture you know, associates pink, associates dresses and bows with girls and not boys. This includes certain forms of jewelry as well. These are cultural differences. Uh, in another culture, you might have men wearing skirts. And that's uh, men wearing kilts. These kilts, they're skirts, they're, but, they're, but they're an expression of manliness. So what does that mean? That means skirts, the color pink, jewelry, certain kinds of clothing. These aren't universal or timeless. These are particular cultural expressions that are different for different times and different places. Right? In our culture, you know, men don't wear skirts. Right? Uh, but in other cultures, they do. And that's an expression of manhood. So we have to understand that there are certain cultural expressions. And, and unless those cultural expressions violate scripture, it's generally wise to stick to those. It's wise for me to dress my daughter, Alexa, in a pink dress so she won't be confused as a boy, especially in those early, you know, those early months when she didn't have much hair. And you, can't, you couldn't really tell just by looking at her if she was a boy or a girl. So we went out of our, our way to you know, just put her in a pink dress and put a bow in her hair. Let's, let's make sure people are aware so they're not confused. Similarly, it would be wise for me not to dress my son Timothy in a pink dress. If I, don't want her to, if I don't want him to be confused as a girl. So it's helpful for us to learn to speak the language of gender in our culture. And I want to contrast these, uh, you know, the, the creational differences uh, with the cultural differences. Those creational differences that we spent a lot of time looking at, those creational differences are universal and timeless. Doesn't matter what culture you're in, only a mother gives birth, right? Doesn't matter what culture you're in, God calls husbands to lead, calls fathers to instruct, calls mothers to, to, to the care and nurture of, of the children and of the home. So in summary, for us to love our neighbor, to communicate well, it's generally wise to abide by these cultural uh, differences as much as possible. Okay, so number three, uh, wrapping up here, conventional differences. Uh, these conventional differences, we should feel the complete freedom to embrace or reject them. Uh, we, there are conventional stereotypes where girls do certain activities and while boys do other activities. For instance, the, the stereotype is that girls dance and boys play sports. Girls dance and boys play sports. But we have to remember activities, they don't define gender. These cultural stereotypes, these preferences, they don't define whether someone is a, a male or a female, a boy or a girl. These conventional stereotypes are a matter of taste and preference. Let me read this quote from Marty's book. Some girls love to sing and dance, while other girls run like the wind and like to climb trees. Some girls like to cook, while others would rather fix cars. Some boys can jump high and run fast, while others are artists. Some boys like to dance and some love to sing. Some cook and some fix cars. Let me I'll continue with this next quote here. 
Uh, being a man, for example, does not entail an automatic love of football. And being a woman does not demand an automatic love for cooking. When society attaches stereotypes to gender and sex, it can easily send the signal that anyone who fails to conform to those stereotypes is somehow failing to epitomize manhood or womanhood. So parents, what does this mean? Well, your daughter might be into sports. She might enjoy wrestling. She might enjoy exploring or building. God might call her to be an athlete, an engineer, or a scientist. And same with our sons. God, you know, uh, your son might be interested in dancing or singing. Your, your son might be called to be an artist or a cook. Remember, particular activities, particular uh, occupations don't, uh, you know, they, they're not, uh, we shouldn't assume that they're, all, you know, they're only you know, attached to one gender or the other. Remember in the book of Genesis, uh, Jacob liked the indoors and liked to cook. Esau liked the outdoors and liked to hunt. Both were men. What are some other examples? Um, you know, the stereotype is that men like trucks, they like power tools, and that, uh, you know, females like dolls. Uh, if you haven't heard him tell it, Tim's got a pretty funny sermon illustration on trucks and how uh, you know, trucks were being used to illustrate manliness. Uh, and the, again, the stereotype is that uh, trucks are driven by men, not by women. But it's just that. It's a stereotype. There's plenty of examples that break that stereotype. Lots of women drive trucks. Uh, we're aware of a Sovereign Grace pastor who has a garage full of power tools. Full of power tools. A whole workshop. But they're not his power tools. They're his wife's power tools. So these conventional stereotypes, we should feel uh, the freedom to disregard them. These are not creational. These are not cultural. These are simply a matter of convention. We should feel the freedom to follow them or not follow them. Okay, before we get to Q&A, just let me just briefly, another minute or two, just uh, give you a recap of what we've covered tonight before jumping to questions here. Again, our key verse is found in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord when we embrace submission. Embrace submission. He is God and creator, and we are not. We trust God as our sovereign creator and Lord when we embrace differences. We celebrate them. We rejoice over them. We don't have to feel like we hide them. There are creational differences that are inflexible. We have male and female have different anatomy. They have different roles. And these differences reflect differences in God himself. But there are also cultural differences as well as conventional differences. So that's all we've been able to cover tonight. Um, next time, I'm hoping to cover what it means to embrace authority, God's authority over us. But for now, we'll stop there. And we will open it up for questions. I've asked Teresa to help collect questions. I think some of them have started coming in. So, uh, Teresa, if you're ready to do questions, you can just go ahead and uh, start firing away, and I will attempt to, to, to answer them. Okay. Your first question was asked by two people. Um, so I'll read both of them, and you can sort of adapt your answer to um, 
you know, the two questions. Um, so number one, as we and our kids interact with non-believers in the world, how would you navigate the requested use of alternate pronouns or name changes? And um, should we respect people's pronouns um, who are transgender? If a woman changes her gender to be a man, should I continue to call it her or her or change the pronoun to him? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And actually, um, I mean, I can speak to that briefly now. Um, I was planning to get into some more apologetics next time, like how do we engage with the culture? Um, you know, what are some key issues? How do we get into conversation? You know, how do we bring the hope of the gospel, you know, for those who are struggling with gender dysphoria? Uh, you know, so that'll be next time. But briefly, I can say, you know, uh, I think there is wisdom in calling, uh, I think, you know, my recommendation would be to call people by their name because names aren't necessarily gendered. Now, Christians do don't all agree on whether we should use someone's preferred pronoun. You know, there are some who would argue, well, when, you know, when, whenever we speak, we have uh, not just the audience of the person we're speaking to, we're speaking in the presence of God. You know, God is the audience of all. We live in the presence of God. So we need to choose to honor God by calling someone the pronoun from God's perspective. But there are others who would argue that, you know, you know in order to build a bridge, you know, we can choose to use the preferred pronoun even though we know it's incorrect. And so there's, there's some ongoing debate and discussion among Christians on, on, on how to use pronouns. Uh, you know, if you use someone's name, then you won't get into that issue. But, you know, that's something I can give some more thought to, and we are going to talk about apologetics next time. Okay. Uh, did I answer that question? Uh, was there, there was another part to that or something? No, no, that was it. Um, okay. So okay. secondly, the second question, we have three questions total. So the second question is, considering the distinct roles of male and female, how much should I as a male desire to be nurturing and a caregiver, or should I not? And then somebody else also asked a similar question. Um, similarly, men should be able to pursue a life as caregiver or stay-at-home dad in the home, right? Like women can pursue a career outside the home. Yes, and uh, I think that that gets uh, to parenting as well in terms of how to discipline. And, uh, you know, Paul instructs fathers, you know, do not uh, exasperate, do not provoke your children to wrath. Uh, but bring them up in the you know training and instruction of the Lord. So so as fathers, I think, and Paul has to write that because I think the tendency for us as father is to be harsh and impatient with our children. So we have to be told, don't exasperate your children. You know, don't provoke them to wrath. Don't tempt them to uh, towards anger towards you because uh, you know you're being unreasonable or inflexible or impatient or hard with your children. Uh, so, so absolutely, you know, uh, you know, there, there, um, you know, the call to, uh, to instruction, the call to leadership, the call, uh, to authority, uh, doesn't mean we don't nurture as well, that we're not called to, you know, bear the fruit of the spirit, right? We look at the fruit of the spirit, you know, that's, that's for both men and women, right? We're called to, you know, you know, lo uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, Right. 
and today in our devotions as a family, we just read first Corinthians 13, right? You know, we are called to love our children, to love our neighbor, love, uh, and, and love begins with, you know, love is patient, love is kind, right? I mean, so th- those are universal, you know, regardless of whether you're a father or a mother. So, so absolutely, we need to, uh, you know, there, you know how, how we exercise our leadership and responsibility over the home uh, is, is important to God, you know, uh, again, for all the reasons Tim stated earlier in the first session, because our children are image bearers of God and we need to treat them with respect. Uh, they're fellow image bearers just as we are. Uh, so, uh, I hope I answered that question. Um, you know, I think, I think it more has to do with, uh, okay. So, so, uh, the, I think that the other part of it was, you know, can fathers or men be called to be that, like stay at home dads and stuff like that. Uh, and I think, um, I think, I think it's certainly possible. Uh, you know, fathers have, you know, the primary responsibility to provide, but I could foresee a situation where, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, in a particular marriage, the wife uh, is gifted in a particular way and is called to a particular career. And uh, it may just make sense for the father to stay at home. There could conceivably be a situation like that. I think it's more rare. Uh, but I, th- I certainly think it's more possible. I think it would be more the exception rather than the rule. But the biblical principle still applies. You know, the father still has responsibility to make sure the family is provided for. He might not be the one earning the paycheck per se, but he has responsibility to make sure, okay, you know, how, how is the family doing? You know, how are the finances managed? How is my family being taken care of? You know, uh, what is the direction of my family? Uh, am I teaching my family? Uh, so, so those 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 roles of protector, provider, uh, and instructor in the home, uh, those are still there, uh, you know, and that might look obviously it's going to look different for every single family. Uh, Tim, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add to that. Feel free to yeah, chime in, I, jump in. I think that was good. I think that the um, the questions get at the matter of. It, it's not just that, you know, the husband, father has one role and that's distinct and that's different. And the, the wife and the mother has another role and that's di- distinct and that's different. The reality, even in scripture, is that there's an overlap of those roles. So, you know, not only does the husband, father provide, but the wife and mother provides. Not only does the wife and mother nurture the husband and father nurtures. Uh, but the roles that are defined in scripture are primary roles and they are responsibilities, though, as you say, they can't, they not only can um, and may work out differently in every home, they will work out differently in every home because they just, uh, no two families are exactly the same, and no two packages of gifts that a husband and a wife have uh, are the same. Uh, nevertheless, the primary responsibilities hold true in terms of what a man is to do and what a woman is to do. So. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Any other questions? Is there one more question? Yes, there is one more question. Um, the question is, what about, for example, boys who are born with female characteristics? 
who think that they should be girls who are attracted to males. Yeah, I, again, I think we'll, we'll cover that more in detail next time. But, uh, you know, there, there are, uh, you know, examples uh, of that, you know, where, uh, you know, a boy doesn't seem to do things that you would expect a boy to do, or a girl doesn't seem to do a thing, things that a girl, you would expect a girl to do. And then that's where we need to exercise discernment, like where, you know, are some of those differences just purely conventional, right? Like, well, I thought my boy would be like me going out and hunting and fishing and running and loving football, you know, uh, and, and those expectations aren't being met, but you know, those aren't necessarily biblical definitions of manhood, right? So we have to discern, you know, are those conventional differences? Are they cultural ones? Or are they creational ones, you know? Uh, so for instance, if your son, you know, aspires to bear children, right, to be pregnant and bear children, I mean, maybe some of it is just, you know, trying to be silly, trying to make believe, trying to uh, pretend and have fun, you know, which kids do. They pretend to do things that uh, they would, you know, they'll pretend to be a tiger or, or, you know, a dragon or some other animal. You have to discern, is it just some of that? Or do they really want to, you know, does your boy really want to be a girl, want to be a mother, want to bear children, want to wear dresses? And so, so I think you kind of have to parse those out and, and discern, you know, which category they belong to. And then where correction is needed, correction needs to be made. So, so if my son, you know, he aspires to, to, um, to bear children, you know, he's grown up and he continues to have these desires and where that's where, when we need to bring scripture and to, and to t bring teaching uh, into these situations and to explain, uh, you know, the realities of creational differences, differences in anatomy, differences in roles. Uh, you know, if you have a, a girl who aspires to, um, to be a pastor, for instance, you know, uh, you know, that's where we need to bring scriptural teaching, you know, to, to say that, you know, girls, uh, women do teach, you know, women teach other women, but, uh, you know, the role of the pastor is restricted to, restricted to men, you know? Uh, so, so I guess in, in those situations, I would, I would try to determine what category they fall into and then, uh, and then make sure it's not my expectations of uh, a femaleness or maleness that are coming into play, but it's really, you know, we're bringing God's teaching and God's conviction into play. Tim, feel free to chime in, you know, if you have anything you want to add, but you know, uh, nope, nothing okay. to add. Thanks. Okay. Good. So that's all the questions that we had. Okay. So, so we, so we made it, we made it. Well, it's, it's really good for us to, to look at these things, to study these things. Uh, you know, I, um, you know, things that we could have just taken for granted, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago are now all up for grabs. So it's important for us as the church to, to think carefully, to think biblically, and then, uh, and then obviously to engage with people. You know, we, you know our, our goal is to be on mission as well, right? Not just to, okay, we have our own convictions, we have our own values, and we're just going to have our own little subculture, you know, isolated from the rest of the world. And that's what I'm going to be talking about, uh, you know, next time. I'm going to really get into some nitty gritty on, you know, how you can engage with people who think very differently with us. How can we offer the hope of the gospel uh, to people who are finding hope 
in false idols, you know, the idol of gender ideology, the, the idol of, you know, trying to be a creator. How do we bring the hope of Christ in that, in those situations? So, so I think the plan is for next, uh, you know, Equip Tuesday for me to finish uh, this teaching, to unpack it a bit more. And I believe that will be Tuesday, June 9th. So Tuesday, June 9th will be our next uh, second a Tuesday. So, Alex, can I just, I uh, in no way want to, uh, all I want to say is that I really appreciated the theological foundation here this evening before the practical application or even apologetic content of next time. You took us straight to the scriptures and to the theology of creation and the rest which is where this conversation needs to begin, or else we lose our way in all the questions and complexities of it. So I really appreciate where you started and how you grounded us and look forward to the next one. Thank you, man, well done. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, Tim, do you wanna, uh, can you just take a moment to close us in prayer? That, sure. You know, yeah, thank you. Father, thank you for being with us in this time. Thank you for the labor of love that uh, Alex has, has given, has devoted uh, to this and to us. Uh, thank you for giving him an anointing to deliver this word. Lord, give us ears to hear and then careful uh, convictions. Uh, courage, but also compassion and caring, as these are sensitive and, in many cases, heart-wrenching uh, issues in our day. Lord, give us grace both to understand and to love uh, with courage and care. Uh, thank you, Lord. Be with us now. God bless. Well, please bless our homes. Bless our families. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.